In most every high school and college, there is an honors list. I knew that because I wasn't on it. It's recognizing those who have achieved academic excellence, whose educational career has been significant and outstanding, usually the top 10% of the class. However, I've never been at a graduation where I've heard someone say, now here's our valedictorian, but before we talk about all their good achievements, let me remind you that they have an anger problem and they just got over a DUI and, uh, you know, they're running into uh, other problems with the law, but they've done well here. You never hear that, do you? They just read a summary of their great achievements instead of talking about the deep struggle. It's amazing to me that sometimes that's exactly what God does. In Hebrews chapter 11, you have something of an honors list. Those who are being commended for their faith. So let me encourage you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're doing a summer series called Heroes of the Faith. And today we get to focus on a guy by the name of Noah Verse 7, by faith, Noah. All these individuals are heroes, that is, they have achieved something significant because of faith in God, but the Bible, at least in Hebrews 11, doesn't always tell us their significant struggles and failures. But Noah is an interesting character. People are fascinated with the story of the ark. They can't get enough of it. Countless expedition teams are sent searching for the actual ark itself, which is in probably somewhere in modern-day Turkey, if it's still there. The Hollywood hype picks up on all of this curiosity, and so you've got, like in 2007, a movie that was something of a flop called Evan Almighty, starring Stephen Carell, which has the ark landing in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Or in 2014, the movie simply entitled Noah with Russell Crowe, which was more of a success at the box office, but strayed far from the biblical text. So people are confused about the story. When you talk about Noah and the ark, this is often what you think of. This cartoon picture uh, gives you a sense that, you know, the ark was itty-bitty, and there were so many animals, and it's just a ridiculous story that cannot be true. But I'm more convinced that the ark probably looks something like this next picture, uh, a rather long, elongated wooden box uh, in the midst of the storm, or perhaps this next picture, which is a fantastic painting uh, of what we might envision the real ark being in the midst of an amazing storm. Some individuals have even gone so far as to build a full-size replica of the ark. Johan Ubers in Dordrecht, Netherlands, has built this ark. It took him 20 years, cost over a million dollars. He is an evangelical believer and a uh, builder as well. Here's another picture of the ark. I love this picture because in the back right, or on the right-hand side, you see a windmill, and that's not something taken from Holland, Michigan. Uh, this is an actual one in the Netherlands. In fact, this ark floats. And they were planning to float it all the way from the Netherlands down to uh, Rio in Brazil for the Summer Olympics. But something happened and uh, they, they didn't float it down. But here is perhaps the most popular life-size 
building, the Ark Encounter opening in 2016 in Williamstown, Kentucky, only about a five-hour drive away. Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, uh, uh, collected uh, over $92 million, I'm told, to, to build this. And this picture I love because it's a wonderful picture in the evening and uh, it gives you maybe a picture of what the ark might have looked like when it finally rested and the waters began to recede and the Son of God came out along with what you don't see there, a rainbow. But I want you to know, with or without the boat, this is a true story, an actual historic event. And although people cannot get enough about this incredible tale, I think sometimes we overlook the builder of the boat, Noah himself. Look at verse 7 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and implied by his faith became an heir of righteousness the righteousness that comes by faith. I think we need to be equally fascinated by this incredible individual who believed God. Notice three times in this one verse, faith is singled out, much as we saw in the life of Abel. We've already looked at Enoch and Abel, and I find it interesting that in their lives, nothing in the scripture is depicted in the sense of a failure or sin. But those of you who read Noah's account and biography in the book of Genesis will realize that there is some sin that is laid at his feet, and he wasn't a perfect individual. But he is a hero of the faith because faith rose to the top. That is, faith dominated and directed his life. And what I want to do this morning, because we all know much about the life of Noah is to extract from verse 7 three major movements in his life that are all connected to faith. And the first one is this. Faith stirred him to build a boat. Genesis chapter 6. Let's go to there for a moment. And notice as we read in Hebrews eleven seven, faith stirred Noah to build a boat. When we began reading in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 6, it tells us that there was a population explosion when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, probably the line of Seth, the godly line, married the daughters of men, probably the line of Cain, the worldly line, and there rose up this huge population of people who weren't concerned about following God. So verse 3, we have these words. The Lord said, My spirit will not always contend, strive, put up with man forever, for he is mortal, and his days will be 120 years. So whenever this statement was prophesied and mentioned, there would be this period of 120 years before God's patience would end. God is patient. 120 years is pretty patient, but there is a limitation to the patience of God. 
Verse 4 says the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. That is a race of people that were renowned. In fact, they're called heroes in the NIV, verse 4. Heroes of old. Heroes because of their strength. They were capable and powerful but decadent. Well known for their sin. In fact, at this point in time, look at verse 5. This is perhaps the most inclusive and exhaustive definition of human depravity you will ever find in the Scripture. The Lord saw that how great man's wickedness was on the earth, how great it had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Wow! Not just some days, every day. Not just some actions, every action. Not just some thoughts, but every inclination was tainted and dominated by sin. In fact, this picture of the human race is most appalling. Perhaps this is the lowest the human race has ever sunk to as far as a level of morality. But I remind you that in Matthew 24 it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be when the Son of Man returns. When God created, early in the book of Genesis, at the end of every day, he said, this is good. This is good. Now, verse 5, God sees this is horrible. God sees and God grieves. That's verse 6. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Some really misunderstand this verse. They're thinking God is saying to himself, ah, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I mean, you and I do that, don't we? We're filled with remorse. We're sorry for our actions. And we say to ourselves, had I known how this was going to turn out, I wouldn't have done this. My friend, God is not saying that at all. He's not saying, boy, if I knew man was going to be this bad, I never would have created him. What he is saying is, I created him even knowing he was going to be this bad. And knowing that it would pain my heart and grieve my soul, putting God's feelings uh, in an anthropomorphic phrase into our own situations and emotions. And so God says in verse 7, I'm going to wipe out mankind whom I've created from the face of this earth. Animals, creatures that move on the ground, birds of the air, for I'm grieved that I have made them, or that in making them I have grieved. But notice the contrast, verse 8. Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. So here is this guy, Noah, in contrast to the generation in which he lives, much like Enoch in chapter 5, who, by the way, is his great-grandson. And immediately we're introduced with the fact that Noah had some relationship with God. And the theological debate goes on, and maybe you can establish it a little better throughout the scriptures. Did the favor of God come first before Noah began to follow him, or was he following God and the favor of God rested upon him? Well, I'm convinced that we love him because he first loved us. God always initiates grace. So here's Noah finding favor with God. And verse 9 says, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, 
blameless among the people of his time. In the midst of a wicked generation, he was righteous or godly, and Noah walked with God. He had a relationship with God in the midst of bad times. And just as we noticed in chapter 5, so it continues that godliness can exist in the midst of ungodliness. When our focus is on God's favor to us and our desire is simply to follow him. By the way, if you walk with a holy God in a sinful world, the sin will be accentuated not just the sin around you, but the sin within you. If you walk with a holy God, you will be more sensitive to your own sin. Have you ever said this, the closer I get to God, the more I see of my sin? That's because the closer you get to the light, the more you see of your darkness. And so Noah was very much aware that his generation was out of step with God. And Noah was doing all of those things that we had talked about that Enoch was doing. He was walking in God's path. He was listening to God's voice. He was in harmony with God's spirit. He was walking in pace with God, not lagging behind or rushing ahead. His consciousness, his awareness of how wicked the times were was born out of his communion with a holy God. And at some point in time, God warned him of what was to come. We read about that in Hebrews 11. By faith, being warned of God. And here is the warning. Look at verse 11. This is Genesis 6, 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, here's the warning, I'm going to put an end to all the people on the face of the earth. For the earth is filled with violence. I'm surely going to destroy them and the earth. You say, boy, that's pretty harsh (laughs) for God to come down and just destroy everybody. The reality is mankind had already ruined the earth. God was just coming in to mop up. Mankind had already destroyed what God had created that was so holy and so good. And so the man who had a relationship with God was warned by God. And by the way, when you walk by faith, you listen to God's warnings. You hear God's voice, and you listen to his warnings, and that's exactly what Noah heard. So many people who say that they are spiritual, that they have faith, that they love God, don't listen to the warnings of God. Play fast and loose in their own life with the Commands of God. By the way, the things that Noah was warned about were invisible. That came up in Hebrews 11.7, being warned of things not seen. Remember our definition of faith that comes from chapter 11, verse 1 and 2? Faith is being certain of things you can't see. Faith operates in the realm of the invisible. Noah, there's going to be some rain. What's rain? I don't think it rained before the flood. We're told in the early chapters of Genesis that the ground was watered by springs and dew or or, or water that came up and that the heavens had some kind of canopy that held the water back. The antediluvian race and situation, the ecology of the world was so different than what we experience today. 
There's going to be some water, and there's going to be some mud. There's going to be something called a flood, and Noah said, explain this to me. And so Noah is told that judgment is coming. So verse 14, I want you to build an ark of cypress wood. The old translation has gopher wood. And I want you to make rooms in it and cover, cover it with pitch inside and out. By the way, this tarry substance is a very interesting word that is equal to the Old Testament word for atonement. And so I want you to build this huge thing and the dimensions are given, the instructions are pretty specific and he follows it. Faith says what God has warned me about is true. It's coming even though I can't see it. So I'm going to order my life and invest my time based on the warnings and word of God. I also think he probably counseled with his grandfather. Who was, his, who was the grandfather of Noah? An old guy by the name of Methuselah. And when he was born, he was given the name when he is gone, it shall come. At least that's one translation of the name. And, and I can imagine Noah sitting down with his grandpa saying, Granddad, tell me again. Tell me then again about your dad. And, and tell me again about our ancestors and, and Adam and Eve and how God talked to them. And give me the story. All those great stories. And Methuselah would have said, you know, God has warned you. He's given you insight. You've got to believe him. Would have encouraged him along the way. And so Noah responds to God. He has a relationship with God. He hears the word of God, the warnings, and now he responds to God. Look at the very last verse of Genesis 6. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That's what we call obedience. The same thing is found later on in chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord God commanded him he responded because of faith with obedience obedience of faith always acts faith always obeys and notice if you go back or remember what we read a moment ago in Hebrews 11 being warned of God he responded with godly fear there is a sense in which there is a ungodly fear but a godly fear means that you have respect to the word and ways of God a godly fear doesn't repel you and drive you away from God a godly fear draws you to him in utter respect and awe some of you feared your father's and sometimes it was a bad fear because your father abused you, mistreated you. And you knew that one slight step out of line and judgment would come and you feared him with an unhealthy fear that has followed you all of your days. But some of you feared your father with an awe and respect because he was so consistent and filled with integrity and so much bigger than you. The Greek word phobos, where we get the English phobia, can be used positively or negatively. 
And the positive way to fear God is to recognize that he is far greater than you, filled with integrity, and his word is to be obeyed. And so that's exactly what Noah does. He responds to God in godly fear. Let me recommend to you the wonderful book written by Jerry Bridges entitled The Joy of Fearing God. The Joy of Fearing God. Let me encourage you to go through the book of Proverbs. Look up in your concordance every time the phrase the fear of God is used and build a theology from the book of Proverbs on what it is to fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the fountain of life. It's respect and awe to the one who made you. He is holy, but he's also God of righteousness. His holiness is his essence. His righteousness demands action and results in justice. And that's why the flood is coming. But for his own, he builds an ark so Noah can save his family. And this ark becomes a wonderful picture in the New Testament of the person of Jesus Christ, who protects us when we are in Christ from the flood, the judgment waters of God. So Noah, by faith, is stirred to build a boat in the middle of dry land, far from the ocean, I'm sure to the cajoling and laughter of everyone around him. I don't think anything must have seemed as futile and ridiculous, completely silly as building an ark. And he kept at it. Did it take him 120 years? We don't know. The prophecy that God gave about the end of man was 120 years before the flood, but we don't know exactly when Noah got the warning and he started the project. But if it took Johann Huber's 20 years to build his, maybe it took Noah even a little longer. It depends on how much help he had. God continues to work through the worst of times, and Noah finds himself working with God in co-partnership with the Lord, doing his work. And that's exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to be stirred by faith to do his work in the midst of wicked times even though it might seem so ridiculous in the eyes of the world. There's something else I draw out of Hebrews chapter 11, and that something else is this. Faith caused Noah to condemn the world. Faith caused Noah to condemn the world. Now, how did he do that? I think he did it two ways. First of all, by his testimony that is by his life just by the way he lived right he was a righteous man in fact I count at least four times it's in the book of Genesis it's in the book of Ezekiel it's found also in the New Testament book of first Peter that Noah was a righteous man and when you live a righteous life in an ungodly world you're going to stand out your light will expose the darkness and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they'll say, put out the light. And that's why I believe if we live godly in this present generation, there will be persecution. 
and we're getting it now, it's more verbal, but it's going to intensify. And when you and I try to stand for righteous biblical standards in this dark world, people are going to say, put out the light. And they're trying to do that already. But his very testimony condemned them. When you live righteously, the way you live will condemn others. It will make them miserable. I love the story years ago of Billy Graham golfing with a professional golfer. This professional golfer was not a Christian, but his buddy, who was another professional golfer, was. So he says to his buddy, hey, I'm golfing with Billy Graham today. Can you give me something religious to say? And the guy said, don't worry about it. He says, I'm afraid that Graham is going to grill me on every hole. He says, ah, don't worry about it. And so they went out golfing, 18 holes. And came back into the locker room afterward, and the Christian asked his friend, hey, how was it? He says, it was miserable. I hated every moment of it. He said, Billy Graham was pretty hard on you, wasn't he? He said, no, he was the nicest man in the world. He quoted a bunch of scripture at you. He said, no, I don't remember him quoting any scripture. He must have really got hard on you for your sin. He said, no, only kind things to me. Well, then why were you so miserable? Because he was so good. His kindness only intensified my sin. And when you live godly in a wicked world, people are going to be saying to you, I can't stand being around you. You make me miserable. It's because you're seeking to follow God and I'm not. His obedience condemned the world. 1 Peter chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, but it said God waited patiently in the days of Noah. I guess, 120 years. And by the way, when God waits patiently for people to repent, who else has to wait? You and me. When God's dealing with friends in our family, when God's dealing with our spouse... Who has to wait patiently on God? And who gets frustrated? Lord, when are you going to deal with these people? You know, you love to quote the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, You know, dash them against the rocks and break their teeth and end their life and wipe them out of the book of life. You know, those are the kinds of things we want to pray. How come I have to put up with this? And God says, I'm not slack concerning my promise, as some people count tardiness. I'm just long-suffering, waiting for people to repent. And that's exactly what God did. He said judgment was coming, but it was at least 120 years from the prophecy to the fulfillment, because God is a patient God, but when God waits, you and I have to wait as well. And we're not very good at waiting. But 2 Peter chapter 5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people, but protected Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness. So not only did he have the occupation of builder, but he also had the occupation of preacher. And in some way and form, he proclaimed the word of God. Now what was his teaching? Judgment is coming which would have seemed totally ridiculous to a world in prosperity. The sun was still shining, the birds were singing, the crops were coming forth. It was a time of rich prosperity. People were doing whatever they wanted to do and no judgment came. And here's Noah saying, judgment is coming. And people laughed. 
until the first few raindrops. So he was proclaiming righteousness. I don't necessarily think Noah stood up and said, you're condemned. I think he said, God loves you and longs to save you, but he is going to judge your sin unless you turn to him. And the mercy of God proclaimed for 120 years or however long it was, was rejected until God shut the door. Remember that, Genesis chapter 7? Noah and his family get in the ark and the animals come in two by two into the ark and then God shuts the door. There is an end to the mercy of God in your life. There is a limitation to his patience. I don't know when it is. But I do know this. If you hear his voice today, turn to him. Who was Noah preaching to? Some extended family members. Now his immediate family, his sons and their wives and Noah's wife, they were in the ark, but relatives, brothers, sisters, cousins, they didn't make it. He was preaching to people who had uh, uh, maybe worked on the ark. Do you ever think of that? Maybe the ark didn't take but 20 years to build because... He hired people to do it. We had people working on this building who knew nothing of Christ. And we were hoping to be a testimony to some of the subcontractors who were working on the building. He preached to people who witnessed miracles. Hey, have you been down to see crazy Noah? Haven't been there for a while. What's happening? The most amazing thing in the world, animals are starting to come to this ship. And they're coming in two by two. And if I'm not mistaken, one's a male and one's a female. And they're coming for And he's not even going out to get them. They're coming to him. How do you explain that one? Well, I'm sure they had a way. He must be drawing them with some kind of new food. But he preached to people that he worked with. He preached to people that he probably prayed for. He preached to people that witnessed miracles. And they still didn't believe. So by his life, and by simply teaching the word, even in a loving, kind, but clear way, condemnation was going out. You're condemned if you don't believe. Now, the world, according to John chapter 3, is condemned already. Every person born into the world is already under condemnation. And Jesus comes not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But in coming to save the world, if his message is rejected, you are sealing your condemnation. That's what was happening in the day of Noah as he proclaimed the truth of God's word. But there's a third thing that jumps out to me, and it's connected with faith, and it's taken right from Hebrews 11 and verse 7, and it is simply this. By faith, faith made Noah an heir of righteousness. So it stirred him to build a boat. Faith caused him to condemn the world. And faith made him an heir of righteousness. What does it mean to be an heir. What do we mean when we talk about a spiritual inheritance? Well, if you go back to chapter 11 in Hebrews, we'll come back to Genesis in just a moment, 
But I find this interesting. In the very next verse, after talking about Noah, it begins to talk about Abraham. So Hebrews 11 and verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed. So sometimes you have the rule of immediate context, which simply means a word is best defined in the context in which you find it. So here is inherit, an heir, and inheritance right together in the same context. So you might think, okay, the inheritance that Noah was after is a place in this world. For Abraham, it was the land of Canaan, but you would be wrong. You need to go back to chapter 9 in Hebrews and verse 15 that says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. And now we're introduced to the biblical concept that the word inheritance has at least two uh, main aspects to it. One, earthly inheritance. One, eternal inheritance. And there are similarities between the two. An earthly inheritance, as to Abraham, referred to a place. An earthly inheritance refers to privilege, authority, position. It has something to do with provision or resources that now accrue to you because you receive the inheritance. It's not something that you created. It's something that you receive. You inherit. It's given to you. And it usually comes to you when someone dies. What's the eternal inheritance? Well, it's very similar. It is a place, but not on earth. It's in heaven. It is privilege. You're the son of God. It's a position eternally. It does have to do with provision. Abundant, eternal provision forever of perfect health and all that you need. And it comes to you because someone died. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Now again, back to our text. Noah was made an heir of righteousness. How? By faith. You don't earn salvation by your own righteousness. You don't merit salvation by your own goodness. It is received by faith. And just as he obeyed God by faith to build a boat, and just as he proclaimed God's message by faith and condemned the world who rejected the message, So he was made an heir and considered righteous by faith. Now, this happened long before Abraham. This happened because he followed God. By faith means you follow God. Faith always follows God. Faith acts. Faith cannot be merely cerebral. It must be internal. It must Be from your heart. Faith without works is what? Faith without works is what? Faith without works is what? I said it three times because James chapter 2 says it three times. And whenever anything is repeated in Scripture, it's not because the writer forgot what he just said. 
It's because he has every feeling that you will forget what he just said. So he says it over and over and over again. Faith without works is dead. Faith always works. The faith that saves is faith alone. But the faith that saves proves its true faith by working. And so that's what happened. He followed the Lord. He obeyed God. He saved his family. There was deliverance in the ark. There was destruction outside of the ark. There is deliverance in Jesus Christ. There is destruction outside of Jesus Christ. But the mercy of God is always presented and opportunities to be saved are given. And Noah preached, but people rejected. Some people say the, the flood's pretty harsh. Yeah, but there was mercy, and people rejected it. And then the mercy of God was seen in the rainbow. We need to recover the rainbow and make sure that it is a symbol of God's promise that he would never destroy the earth again with the flood. You say the cross was, cross was pretty harsh judgment. Yeah, God hates sin. But the rainbow is the resurrection. And the proof that God is a God of mercy and will deliver and save. And so, because Noah followed God, he also worshipped God. I want you to jump back to Genesis one last time. And I hope you go back and reread the whole story, Genesis 6 through 9. But in chapter 8 of Genesis, verse 1, it says that God remembered Noah, and he sent a wind, and the waters receded, and Noah came out of the ark. And what is the first thing he did when he came out of the ark? This is chapter 8, verse 20. Noah built an altar. That is, he worshiped God. God remembered Noah, and Noah remembered God. He set down a priority for the new humanity. The entire antediluvian race, the race before the flood, is gone. Now a new race is going to be built. And the scripture says in this text that from his sons, all the people of the earth will be populated. And from this new race, now there is a new priority. Those who walk by faith build altars throughout their life. Constant reminders that God is to be first. And faith causes you to save your family. And faith causes you to worship God. Faith causes you to build altars. And that's exactly what Noah did. So, we could say in the end, by faith, Noah walked with God. And Noah worked for God. And Noah witnessed for God. And Noah worshiped God. Boy, that's just about the whole package right there. And it was all driven by faith. Now, I told you he wasn't a perfect guy. Because you read the biography of Noah, and later on he gets drunk. I'm sure he had some other issues, as all people do. But on the honors list, read at graduation from Hebrews chapter 11, it simply says, by faith, Noah did some amazing things. And I wonder what they will say of you when you graduate from this earth to eternity. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we ask that you will make us something like this man of faith. Hebrews 11 is filled with men and women who were godly people who walked by faith and not by sight. They believed things not yet seen. They trusted the God whom they cannot see, but one day will see. Lord, we by faith believe your word to be true and we listen seriously to your warnings and we're moved with godly, awesome respect to obey and prepare. And you want to fill our lives with abundant joy and make us heirs of your righteousness, the righteousness that we receive by faith alone. So may every time we see a rainbow remind us of your faithfulness and your mercy and the importance of us to walk godly by faith in our own wicked generation. And may we worship and may we work out of godly fear in Jesus' name. And all the people of God said, amen. You're dismissed.